Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A look back at 100 years ago when women ruled a notorious Wild West town. Some thoughts on the effects of technology on our ability to remember our thoughts in the long term. And the internet is calling it the best game of 2020, but it's actually just a virtual 3D tour of a house for sale. What's going on? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Election Day is less than a week away here in the United States, although over 70 million Americans have already cast their votes. And don't worry, I'm not about to get into anything about the presidential election, but I do want to talk about a cool bit of history. So this year, 2020, a record number of women are running for the House of Representatives, 298 of them to be specific, and there was also a record number of women who got further than ever before in the presidential primaries. But despite how far this many women are going this election cycle year on a national scale, they have nothing on the once all-woman-led town of Jackson, Wyoming. This year is the 100th anniversary of the election of Mayor Grace Miller and her cabinet of council members Rose Crabtree, Mae Deloney, Faustina Haight, and Genevieve Van Vleck. They won against an all-male roster in an election with the highest voter turnout since the town was incorporated six years prior. For several of the positions, the women won two to one against the men, and Rose Crabtree even beat her husband, Henry Crabtree. And despite the walloping that he received in the press, by all accounts, he took his defeat in stride. Now, to put a few dates into context here... 1920 was the year that the 19th Amendment was ratified, granting women across the country the right to vote, although effectively just extending that right to white women. Wyoming, however, had granted women the right to vote over 50 years prior in 1869. And though they were the first U.S. state in which women won their suffrage, the first women actually voted in Utah, who passed state suffrage to women only a few weeks after Wyoming, but had an election on the calendar at an earlier date. So Seraph Young, a schoolteacher from Salt Lake City, became the first woman to legally vote in the U.S. on Valentine's Day in 1870. And a brief aside about Utah. While women did win the right to vote in 1870, it was actually taken away again in 1887. This is because part of how suffrage passed to begin with in Utah was because some men who were invested in ending the then-Mormon practice of polygamy believed that giving women the vote would empower them to vote against polygamy. They didn't anticipate, however, that many Mormon women would actually use their vote to continue support for polygamy and to protest anti-polygamy initiatives. So anti-polygamists ramped up their other methods to abolish polygamy, putting pressure on the Mormon Church, or the Church of Latter-day Saints, to disavow polygamy. And written into many of their proposed anti-polygamy bills were measures to revoke women's suffrage. Because, you know, after all, they'd only given women the right to vote as pawns in their game, and since it didn't work, they were taking that right back. Despite women's best organizing efforts, the Edmonds-Tucker Act passed in 1887, taking away all Utah women's right to vote, whether Mormon or not, polygamist or not, married or not. 
But later in 1890, LDS Church President Wilford Woodruff officially ended the practice of polygamy in the church, paving the way for Utah to be accepted as a U.S. state. And following their constitutional convention, women were once again given the right to vote and hold office. Now, 26 years after they had originally won it. So just one of many examples of women voters being disenfranchised, but returning to the more positive story of the all-woman-led town of Jackson, Wyoming, an important note, it wasn't actually even the first all-woman town council in the U.S. That distinction goes to Oskaloosa, Kansas in 1888. But Jackson was unique in filling all of the remaining government roles with women. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Marta Winger became the town clerk, Edna Huff the health officer, and Viola Lundbeck the treasurer, while Pearl Williams, a 5-foot-tall, 22-year-old dynamo, nabbed the position of marshal, end quote. And their all-women government was exceptionally successful, quoting again, Within a fortnight, the women raised the town coffers from $200 to $2,000 by rounding up money due, the previous male leaders hadn't bothered to actually collect taxes, they created a more concrete town square by grading the surrounding streets and installing electric lights. Mindful that Jackson needed a proper place to mourn, the ladies, all described as councilmen in the official minutes, bought the title to a 40-acre plot that became Aspen Hill Cemetery and built a road leading to the graveyard. They also instituted a bit of civility by prohibiting cattle grazing in public areas, as well as the launching of firecrackers and other explosives." End quote. There are a number of factors that led both to these women being elected and their success. We often think of the Wild West as a man's world, a very macho place, a white American man's ideal. And Jackson, Wyoming, indeed, was known at the time for being the place that all outlaws took refuge. But the frontier was a bit more diverse than our history books tell, in terms of gender, race, and even sexuality. If you were different, it was a lot easier to live your life however you saw fit on a rural prairie away from many other people versus in the social sardine tin of a big city. And while there were definitely more men than women, at least early on, women grew in numbers over the years, and they tended to be more proactive about getting down to business than their city counterparts. Especially during the days when homesteading was still a decent way to make a living, things like city government weren't high on many people's minds out in Wyoming, which left a relative opening for women to come in and take care of problems they saw in the community, which is exactly what Mayor Grace Miller and her council members did. Unfortunately, while they were very successful, Jackson, Wyoming would go without another woman council member until the 1980s, and without another woman mayor until 2001. Even now, Wyoming ranks 48th in the country for gender representation in their state legislature. And the reasons for this are not dissimilar to the lack of equal gender representation anywhere else. The election of an all-woman government in 1920 was more of an aberration than a feminist declaration. In Wyoming, politics wasn't a job many people wanted to do at the time, especially men. But as Wyoming became less centered on homesteading, men eventually became more interested in town politics and took over, pushing women out, using the same stereotyping and myths being employed elsewhere and to this day. But it is still very cool and kind of reassuring to know that it happened once and maybe will again someday soon. I think most of us have probably noticed at some point that we maybe don't remember things as well as we used to. 
Is it because we're taking in so much more information and stimulation than ever before? Is it because we know we have access to any information we could want, so there's no reason to remember it? Or is this simply a symptom of aging that many of us are trying to explain away by blaming technology? Scott Taylor, the global head of product for Investments AI at AIG and general man about the internet, wrote a blog post musing on this topic the other day that I found pretty interesting. He's no expert on it, but he did a bit of research to back up his thoughts. The first thing to know is that there's not just a short-term memory and a long-term memory. There's actually three types of memory. Sensory, working, and long-term. Sensory memory, or sensory register, is, as you likely guessed, based on our five senses. It's an ultra-short-term memory, lasting only a few seconds sometimes, but if attention is paid to the information being registered, that gets converted to your working memory. Taylor explains working and long thus, quote, When I look back at my childhood or I remember some basic words from French, I'm drawing on portions of my brain involved in long-term memory. But when I'm trying to hold a few ideas in mind, connect them together so that I can understand a concept or solve a problem, I'm using my working memory, end quote. And in that working memory, it's believed we can only hold four chunks of information in our heads at a time. You know, think of when you're trying to remember something and you keep repeating it to yourself until you can write it down, or how you even sometimes close your eyes to block out other stimuli and keep what you're trying to remember in your head. And that makes sense, not only in terms of the limited amount of chunks of information we can hold in our heads, but also because the main way to convert a working memory to a long-term memory is via repetition. And an interesting note, quote, the forgetting curve, as it's called, is steepest during the first 24 hours after you learn something. Exactly how much you forget percentage-wise varies, but unless you review the material, much of it slips down the drain. What you remember after day one has a good chance of still being retained after 30, end quote. Now, while the working memory only has space for four chunks, the long-term memory is almost infinite. But it can store so much that some memories bury others. Being able to find those memories again and make connections is where the working memory comes back into play. Accessing these memories works best with a strong foundation to your long-term memory. But, Taylor points out, we don't spend time committing as much to our long-term memory on purpose these days because we have so much technology to store or recall the information for us. And as Taylor puts it, quote, In this day and age, this recall memory has become less necessary. Recognition memory is more important, i.e. the ability to judge that a currently present object, person, place, or event has previously been encountered or expected. Research has shown that the internet functions as a sort of externalized memory. When people expect to have future access to information, they have lower rates of recall of the information itself, as one study puts it. If you know that you know something, and you know how to retrieve it, thank you Google, that performs pretty much the same function as having a brain stuffed with lots of long-term memories. And the new networked thought apps allow us to make interesting connections between these various bits of stored knowledge in much the same way that a well-stocked memory does, end quote. Which is all fine for now, but what happens in the case of some sort of apocalypse that wipes out our access to the internet or computers? Are our brains actually changing permanently on an individual or in the long-term species-wide basis? In the event of an apocalypse, would those of us privileged enough to have this kind of memory-altering access to information be at a memory disadvantage? User Six Dimensional on Hacker News commented in response to this article that perhaps even this was a feature and not a bug. 
quote, maybe the ability to recall small detailed facts was evolutionarily less important than building models in our brains. So we offloaded recording small facts, while I think we can still ingest and build slash train our neural nets just fine in our brains, end quote. Overall, I don't think we really have anything to worry about too much, but it is some very interesting food for thought. So interesting, I may even try to commit it to my long-term memory. Alright, so here's something that has apparently taken some parts of the internet by storm the last few days, although I didn't actually hear about it until this morning. It appeared to be just a humble house listing on real estate site Redfin. A quite large, three-bed, four-bath, red-brick home in Louisville that, over the years, has served as a church, a school, and a home business. TV writer and actor Jenny Jaffe tweeted on Monday, quote, Uh, found this in a Facebook group. The person who posted said, Tour in 3D. Try to find the bathtub. Enjoy? End quote. And she included a link to the listing. The virtual 3D tour in question on the house listing was taken down last night without explanation, but not before it became so popular that some people were referring to the quest to find the bathtub in the virtual tour as the best game of 2020. Others wondered if it was a Halloween PR stunt by Redfin, and gamers were competing in speedruns to see who could find the bathtub the quickest. Literally, there are multiple Let's Play videos and three different competition categories. And part of why it took off is because the house is just... bizarre. And confusing. Some called it labyrinthian. By the looks of it, even going in person you might get lost on your first few visits, but certainly within the confines of a virtual tour. And the house itself, too, is interesting. There are weird features like a bathroom with two toilets. It's very cluttered, not tidied up in the way you'd expect a house being photographed for the market to be, leading to lots of tiny gems to be discovered as you walk through. And several of the rooms have boxes piled from floor to ceiling, leading many to correctly guess that the occupants run some sort of reselling business. The real piece de resistance, however, is the bathtub in question. Once it is eventually found, you will see a blue tile sort of open room with stairs leading to nowhere, dirty and disheveled just like the rest of the house. So what the heck is going on here? Fortunately, Andy Bao, as ever, managed to get to the bottom of it. He got in touch with the homeowner, Troy Curtis, who happily cleared a few things up. First, before Bao got in touch, other internet sleuths had already discovered some criminal charges linked to the house. Curtis explains that he and his family buy items for cheap and resell them on places like Amazon Marketplace and eBay. A 2014 raid on the house discovered many of the items they were trying to sell were indeed stolen. Curtis maintains he had no idea that they were stolen by the person that he bought them from, and that he's almost at the end of his probationary period, and that he still makes his living reselling items but avoids Amazon now and mostly sells on eBay. As for the house... It is used as an inventory space for all of that reselling, which explains the huge amount of random junk and boxes. Its strange layout and architecture stem from its history. It began as a small house in the 1950s, with two larger sections added later in the 70s. It was originally a Church of Christ and Christian school before becoming a home to Curtis and previously some of his family members. And the church aspect explains the super weird bathtub. 
It used to be a baptismal tub that opened into the sanctuary. When Curtis's family moved in, they added walls and hooked up plumbing so it could work as a shower. Despite the unusual house serving his unusual reselling business well for many years, Curtis is now looking to sell because his business is doing so well that he actually needs a bigger space to store all his inventory. And when Curtis decided to sell, the real estate agent asked to come take photos and shoot for a virtual tour. A testament to the strange layout of the house, the agent said that a process that usually takes half an hour took a full three hours to complete. And a final piece to the mystery, why late last night the virtual tour was removed from the house's listing on Redfin. And for people who were going to the direct link for the tour that they had saved where it was still accessible, the bathtub was no longer anywhere to be found. Curtis says he didn't know it was going to be taken down and wasn't told, but Bao reached out to the broker and discovered it had nothing to do with the bathtub, actually, but rather what you saw on the tour just before entering the bathtub. A large shelf overflowing with Girls Gone Wild DVDs. For Curtis's part, he says he hopes it's reinstated. He wants to try hawking those DVDs as souvenirs for people who found the bathtub. Like I said, the link is missing from the official listing, but it is still live, sans bathtub and Girls Gone Wild shelf, so if you'd like to see the house for yourself, link is in the show notes. Godspeed. That's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go do some memory exercises to try to keep my brain in shape in case of apocalyptic disaster. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.